In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This uh, evening I'd like to look at a, like for us to look at a passage of scripture that has puzzled and troubled me for quite some time. It's from the book of Hebrews and begins right at the end of chapter 5 and goes on into chapter 6. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained and to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing, and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and that we shall do if God permits. The writer of Hebrews starts this passage we read by talking about milk for babes, meat or solid food for mature people. It's the same image that Paul used in one of his letters. Uh, mature Christians need the meat. Uh, immature Christians, new Christians need milk. Then he goes on to say something that is very strange to me. He wants us to leave the elementary teachings about Christ and press on to maturity. Then he lists those elementary things that we ought to leave in order to go on to maturity. Repentance, faith toward God, washings, I'm presuming that means baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Leave these? I mean, these are the very foundations of our Christian faith. Can you see why I'm a little troubled here? I kind of think I know what he's talking about, though. The church I grew up in, one of the things that was preached over and over and over and over was what, what, what process we go through in order to come into the church. Uh, and it, it was kind of a finger exercise that they played on this thing. Believe, repent of your sins, confess your sins and confess Jesus as Lord, and then be baptized. This was almost always the sermon that was preached. Even, even when the preacher was preaching about something else, it always morphed into this particular thing. Every sermon, over and over. And as a child, I remember listening to these sermons and looking around the church and thinking to myself, all of these people, they've all been baptized into this church already. And in my childish wisdom, I thought to myself, there are a few of these people here that have been baptized members of this church for at least 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> what was happening, as I understood later in adulthood, that by going over and over and over these first steps in Christianity, what was happening was that further spiritual growth and development and maturity was being actually retarded. 
Now, the other thing that troubles me about this passage of Scripture, he says, after we leave these elementary things, we have to press on to maturity. But he never tells us what that is. He goes on to something, another topic. And I'm thinking to myself, what is going on here? Did the man just stop writing, take a break? Maybe he went to bed and got up the next morning? Forgot where he was and started off on something entirely different? Well, I don't think so. Because even when I'm writing something and I go to bed and I start over again in the morning, I always read what I've written so I'll have continuity. And I hardly ever write anything as important as Scripture. Could it be that he was thinking about a special kind of secret knowledge that only special initiates, initiates in the church could receive, and so he couldn't write that down so just everybody could read it? No, no, this, this, this is not anywhere close to it. Because from the very early days of the church, the church has fought against that kind of thinking. Uh, even, in, even in Paul's letters, he fights against that kind of thinking, and especially on into the second and into the third century. This is a big battle and big struggle in the church that no, the gospel is for everyone, and there is no private, secret knowledge that has to be gotten some way. Now there's something else. And as I looked at this, I thought to myself, what in the world in our spiritual development could be more important than things like faith and repentance and resurrection. What could be more important than these things? <coughs> I only came up with one thing. Love. Yeah, love. So why didn't he just say something? Say so. Simple enough. Love. Describe love. Define love. Everybody knows what love is. Well, maybe. But do we really know what love is? Can we really describe love? Ask any teenager who has fallen in love for the first time. Describe what love is. What are you going to get? Well, you know, it's love. You know, man, hey, it's this thing. You know, like it's, it, well, it's love. You know, man, you know. <laughs> now, I've been married a long time. <clears throat> To the same woman, by the way. <laughs> I'm not sure I can do any better than the teenager. <laughs> Diane and I started dating when we were in college. And in our college, we were required to go to chapel every morning. And we held, they held chapel in the large athletic coliseum <clears throat> on, on the campus. Could hold the whole student body and then some. And so... Uh, my seat was on one side of that big, huge coliseum. Diane's seat was way on the other side of that huge coliseum. I couldn't tell which person over there, which one of those little dots was her on the other side of that coliseum, but I knew she was there because unlike me, she's a good person and always went. But I can remember looking over there in that area where I knew she sat with this longing that 
a longing that almost hurt that I not be here and heard there, but that instead we be sitting right next to each other. Now, in my profession, both in business and the church, my profession is dependent on me being able to string words together in a halfway reasonable way. When it comes to love, that's about the best I can do. When I was young, my friend Bob Kent was getting married. His fiancée was a, was a Methodist, and uh, they planned the wedding, the time for the wedding and everything, but something came up, and the minister had a conflict in his schedule and was going to be unable to do the wedding ceremony. So Bob asked me if I'd do the wedding ceremony for him. I said, sure, I'd love to marry you all. But the Methodist minister insisted on doing premarital counseling with Bob and his fiancée. Sometime later, I asked Bob how the premarital counseling went. And Bob said, well, that Methodist preacher, all he talked about was money and love and didn't tell us how to make either one. <laughs> Talking about love, it's difficult. Trying to define love, describe love, it's tough. And I mean, we're still on romantic love for crying out loud. We haven't even gotten to divine love yet. So let's make the leap. Throughout the New Testament, we have the word love used over and over and over again. Take a look at the concordance. Concordance is a list of all the words that are in the, in the Bible and where they're found. A big book, I mean like that, little bitty time. Love took up two full pages in the concordance. I mean, you can hardly open your New Testament <clears throat> without bumping into love. But what love is a description of love, we don't have so much of that. Years ago, I was coaching the Bible Bowl team, preparing for the Parish Life Conference contest in Bible. And one of the letters that was in our assignment for that year was, was, was letters of John, 1 John in particular. And as we worked our way through 1 John, we realized John says a lot about, 1 John says a lot about love. A lot about love. So we developed a strategy. If you didn't know the answer to a question, write love. Figure we pretty have a pretty good chance of giving it. But you know, the closest thing that 1 John comes as far as really making a definition of love is this. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Oh, well, okay. But what are the great commandments? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a circular argument, isn't it? The definition of love is love. That doesn't help much. 1 Corinthians 13. We all know 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. I think that's the closest we come to a definition of love in the New Testament. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not brag, is not arrogant, 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Hold that whole chapter. Uh, it's a hymn to love. Very beautiful. That's why we read it at weddings so often. Also, Paul makes a connection here. I don't know whether it's intended or not. I don't know whether they knew each other or not. But there's a connection between this and the passage we read in Hebrews. Because in chapter 12, right before he goes into his hymn to love, he talks about the spiritual gifts. He talks about the apostles, prophets, teachers, people that do miracles in the church, people that do healing in the church. This is the big time gifts of the Spirit, right? And then right at the end of chapter 12, he says, but I'm going to show you a better way. And then he starts in on his hymn of love. And basically, in the end, he says, all this other stuff, even knowledge itself, is going to pass away. What's going to be left? Faith, hope, love. Greatest is love. I guess the New Testament really is actually full of definitions of love, but it's not the dictionary type of definition. Love is defined in the New Testament by examples of love. Our story today from Mark in our rather lengthy lesson about the woman with the perfume that comes in, Jesus leading the disciples. She comes in, she breaks the, the container of the perfume, pours the whole thing on Jesus' head. It's a beautiful scene, a very tender scene, even a sensuous scene. It's a moment of love. But the disciples ruined it. What about this waste? Why, this perfume could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. I kind of understand the objection. Do you know how much 300 denarii is worth? The denarius was equal to the pay of a common laborer for one, one day. Now, let's translate that into modern times. If we take the minimum wage, I think it's still 750, federal, I think it's 750. We multiply that by eight, we get a daily wage of $58. And Kent's already reaching for his computer back there. <laughs> If we multiply the 58 by 300, you know what we get? We get $17,400. Now that was quite a bottle of perfume. <clears throat> Diane really likes one particular brand of cologne. And I like it, I really like it too, uh, on her. <laughs> Used to get it at Walmart of all places, 30 or $40. Then Walmart quit carrying it. Couldn't find it anywhere else. Finally found it online. It's a bit cheaper. I looked here recently. It's now costing $345. I have a feeling when she runs out of her cologne, we may not be getting any more. <laughs> eh, we'll see. At least it's not 300 denarii or $17,400. The disciples complained. Why all the waste? Because sold this, giving it to the poor. Jesus says, leave her alone. 
She's done a beautiful thing for me. And wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, this story will be told in memory of her. Has Jesus just made this story of love a part of the gospel? I don't think he has. The word, in the, the word love in this story never used, but it's still a beautiful story of love. It's tough to talk about love. It's even harder to define. But, in a way, love is defined over and over throughout the Bible. Not so much in dictionary type definitions as much as it is in examples. Maybe the writer of Hebrews didn't go into an explanation of love because whether you're a teenager or an old married man or the writer of 1 John, love is not really something you describe or define. Love is something, love is something you have to do. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.